I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Mark 14, 43 to 52, and this can be found on page 851 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. I invite you to stand with me as well for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Mark writes this in verse 43, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss, I will kiss, is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Have you ever felt left behind? Have you ever felt abandoned before? Being abandoned is... Probably one of the worst feelings in the world. You might have felt it if your friends stopped talking to you or excluded you from their group. You might have felt it if your boss or or co-workers chose to no longer go to bat for you or to vouch for you. You might have felt it in the midst of divorce. Orphans feel it. Seniors feel it. Being abandoned can stir up emotions of anger, frustration. It can lead to apathy or bitterness. Some have said that it is a wound that never heals. It's hard to get over feeling burned and feeling left alone. And that's what makes our passage this morning so surprising. We meet Jesus again on the night before his death... But he's all alone. He's been abandoned by everyone around him. What is so astounding is that Jesus was not angry. He wasn't frustrated. There isn't any description of bitterness in his heart in the gospel accounts. Instead, what, what permeates the response of Jesus is his calm resolve to carry out his Father's will, no, no matter what others have chosen to do around him. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus cry out to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He was anticipating the agony of the cross. He, he knew that he would be forsaken for a time by his father because of the task that he had been given to take upon himself the penalty of the sins of the world at the cross. And this was no easy ask for him. In a very real human way, Jesus prayed that he might not have to go through with it. But ultimately, through prayer, he submitted to the plan of God and was resolved to suffer for the sins of man. As we, as we continue on in Mark chapter 14 today, we see this resolve of Jesus on display. Despite being left completely alone at his arrest, he didn't falter in his commitment to carry out the divine plan. If you think about it, Jesus had been accompanied by crowds for the majority of his ministry. It had been difficult for him to go anywhere without massive amounts of people wanting to hear from him or, or be healed by him. Just days earlier, he had been greeted on his way into Jerusalem with shouts of acclamation. But here in the garden, Jesus wasn't trending anymore. He had been canceled. Even his inner circle left him. He was all by himself, utterly abandoned, but he did not abandon God's plan. Because Jesus is committed to redeeming us, even those who have abandoned him, like, like his disciples, we may leave him, we may forsake him for a time, but Jesus will not leave, he will not forsake those who belong to him, he proved this to us as he was arrested and left alone in Gethsemane. This morning, I want us to look at what happened to Jesus at his arrest. We'll take this passage in three different sections as we consider various responses people had to Jesus on this dark night. We'll look at how Jesus was betrayed by a friend in verses 43 to 45. And then we'll see how he was misunderstood by his arresters in verses 46 to 49. And finally, we'll notice how he was abandoned by his followers in verses 50 to 52. Betrayed by a friend, misunderstood by his arresters, and abandoned by his followers. First, Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by a friend. As Jesus anticipated his death, he had prayed multiple times to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. The result was that he was strengthened for the hour of suffering that had come upon him. So he told his disciples in verse 42 of chapter 14, Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. And we learn in verse 43 that immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. Notably, Mark writes that he was one of the twelve. Judas was one of those who had committed to follow Jesus during his ministry on earth. He was part of Jesus' crew. He was one of his boys. And those four words, one of the twelve, they highlight the, the depth of Judas' treachery. Jesus was betrayed by a friend whom he had taught, whom he had invested in, whom he had loved, and who had seen up close and personal all the mighty works Jesus had performed and heard all the heavenly truths Jesus had taught. 
when Jesus, when Judas, I should say, came to the garden, he didn't come as a stranger. He came as one of the twelve. But he had already decided that he would no longer associate with Jesus or the eleven guys who were with him. Instead, Judas was now bound to a different group, a different crew. Mark writes that he came with a crowd, with swords and clubs, no less, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Uh, the other gospel writers tell us more about this crowd. In Matthew twenty-six forty-seven, we learn that it was a great crowd. John tells us in John 18 that this crowd consisted of a band or cohort of soldiers and their captain. And that terminology that John uses is an indication that these were Roman soldiers. This makes sense because right next to the temple in Jerusalem was the fortress of Antonia. It had been built by Herod the Great to protect the temple and had housed part of the Roman garrison in the city. And the fortress would have been quite busy during the Passover celebrations. Rome tended to increase their military presence in the city because of all the pilgrims that were there. They were on alert to ensure that any sign of rebellion was quickly quelled. They were obsessed with keeping the peace. That's why even Pilate had traveled to Jerusalem during that time. The Passover feast was an all-hands-on-deck kind of event for the Romans. So you can imagine what likely happened. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they were the representative groups of the Jewish Sanhedrin, They had been approached by Judas with an offer they couldn't resist. They had been struggling to figure out how to get Jesus because he was so popular with the people. They didn't know how to eliminate him. But Judas, one of the twelve, approached them with an offer they couldn't refuse. And after that, the wheels of their duplicity began to move rather quickly. Knowing that they would eventually need to get the approval of Pilate and the Romans to carry out their ultimate goal of murdering Jesus on the cross, there's good reason to believe that they went to Pilate with a request for some help in apprehending the man they believe was about to stir up a revolt. And the mere idea of the Jewish people following Jesus, a man of such magnetism and authority, would have been reason enough for Pilate to approve the request and send a group of soldiers from the Roman garrison at Antonia. That's why Pilate was prepared to sit in judgment over Jesus early in the morning on Friday. That's a good reason he was probably ready. And it may also be the reason why his wife, if you remember, was tormented by her dreams of Jesus that night. So this crowd that Mark writes of was was made up of Jewish leaders. They may have even recruited some of their own Jewish temple guard, but John tells us that the main demographic of this crowd was the band of Roman soldiers led by their captain. must have been a fairly large group. Again, Luke writes that it was a great crowd, and a cohort of Roman soldiers was typically around 600 men. Now, we don't necessarily need to imagine that all 600 went to Gethsemane that evening, but it was still probably a sizable number. For Judas had surely informed the leaders that Jesus would be with at least 12 or 11 others. And given some of the rash tendencies that Judas had observed 
in his fellow disciples over the years who knew what might happen. Indeed, we'll see in a moment that one of them would brandish a sword in defense of the Lord. Judas would have prepared the Jewish and Roman delegation for this operation. The crowd that came upon Jesus in the garden wasn't an unruly or disorganized mob. It was a carefully prepared group of soldiers and officials, small enough to avoid making a scene, yet strong enough to arrest Jesus without incident. I want you also to notice verse 44. I want you to notice there that Judas, who is described by Mark as the betrayer, had planned this all out. He and the leaders had agreed to apprehend Jesus in the middle of the night. During Passover, the moon would have been full, but it would have still been quite dark in Gethsemane among the olive trees in the garden. And because it was night, and because Jesus would be with others, and because greater Jerusalem was brimming with pilgrims, and because the Roman soldiers likely didn't even know what Jesus looked like, Judas felt it was essential to clearly identify Jesus for arrest. So he decided to mark Jesus out with a kiss. That was a normal way for friends or rabbis, teachers, and students to greet one another. It's an act of social connection. It was a sign of closeness. In normal circumstances, it wouldn't have been out of place. So it seemed like a perfect solution for Judas. But this particular kiss would be the definitive act of his hypocrisy. It would be the kiss that led to the death of God. Because after that kiss, the soldiers were instructed to seize Jesus and lead him away under their guard. There were to be no mistakes that night. So we read in verse 45 that when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, again, in an address of intimacy. For what hypocrisy? Then Mark writes, he kissed him. And that, that word for kissed is in the intensive form in Greek. Mark doesn't just use the normal word for kiss, phileo, but it's in intensive form, kata phileo. It means to kiss fervently, to kiss affectionately. It's a word that's used in Luke fifteen twenty when the prodigal son returns home and his father kisses him with joy. It's the word used in Acts 20.37 when Paul, if you remember, had one last meeting with the Ephesian elders and they embraced him and and they kissed him because they, they didn't know when or if they would see him again. This kiss of Judas wasn't a simple peck on the cheek. It was an exaggerated, prolonged kiss because Judas wanted to make sure that Jesus was identified and arrested. His betrayal ran deep. When Jesus didn't meet his greedy and selfish expectations, Judas turned on him. He fronted kindness to cover up his wickedness. He he used a kiss in order to dismiss. But what's amazing is that in Matthew 26.50, Jesus still called him friend. He said to him, friend, not traitor, not betrayer, but But friend, do what you came to do. Jesus didn't meet the selfish desires of Judas. And Judas turned on him for it. 
He did it in a superficially innocuous way, but he had carefully calculated in his heart how to get rid of Jesus in order to get what he really wanted. He had betrayed the Son of God. His heart had turned away from the Lord, but despite all that, Jesus was still willing to call him friend. A deep, deep love that Jesus offers to his friends. Boys, girls, man, woman, do you realize that you will, will always have a friend in Jesus if you desire to be his friend? Even though Judas, his friend, turned on him, Jesus still responded in love toward him. Unfortunately, the sad reality of Judas's life is that he never wanted to be Jesus' friend again. And so we've seen that Jesus was betrayed by a friend. That's the first response that people had to Jesus on the night of his arrest. We see next that Jesus was also misunderstood by his arresters. He was misunderstood by his arresters. After Judas's kiss, the, the soldiers that, had led, that he had led into the garden laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, this arrest set off one of Jesus' disciples. In verse 47, Mark just tells us that one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark seems almost to be um, protecting the identity of this disciple. But we know from John 18 that it was Peter who drew his sword, cutting off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, who was likely there to bring back word to the high priest regarding how the events of the night had unfolded. And I actually really wonder how that report went. Well, we got him, but my ear got cut off, but then he healed it. Mark... Mark doesn't tell us like Luke does that Jesus healed this man's ear. He also doesn't tell us like Matthew does that Jesus told Peter to put his sword away and that Jesus said if he wanted, he could have asked for more than 12 legions of angels to defend him. But Jesus' attitude toward all this commotion is made clear in verses 48 and 49. Jesus didn't approve of Peter's impetuous sword-wielding. Peter, Peter had a passion for his Lord, but he, it was misplaced. He was using physical force to try to fight a, a spiritual battle. He was taking matters into his own hands, doing things his own way, not Jesus' way. Because Jesus was not about advancing his, his kingdom through violence. He isn't a, a violent military leader like Muhammad was. He does not rely on worldly power or strength to bring about his will. Today, we live in a Western society that is consumed with power. Many want to look at this world primarily through the lens of power and oppression. Others seek to assert their will and their beliefs through the power of media and academia and influence. The temptation that we face today is to respond like Peter, to fight the forces of this world with our force to develop our own institutions of human influence. The the temptation is to avenge and to take matters into our own hands, but we must remember that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. The Lord also said in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The kingdom of God does not need our force to grow. 
False religions have tried to change the world through the sword. False Christianity has tried that as well in the past. But, but the, the real gospel of Christ, the saving work of Jesus, the rule of the God of heaven, it doesn't need our human flesh to flex itself. Rather, God works his will out in a different way. He uses his spirit and the ministry of his word and the supernatural love of his people to win others to himself. J.C. Ryle has written, There is no clearer sign of a bad cause in religion than a readiness to appeal to the sword. You see, the religious elite of Israel misunderstood Jesus completely. They thought he was like any other human leader. They thought he was trying to establish a worldly kingdom. But this was not his way. In verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? That word robber can also be translated thief or bandit or even revolutionary. It often describes someone who uses violence or force to get his way. It's the word that is used to describe the the robbers who stripped and beat and left for dead the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the word used to describe Barabbas, the murderer and insurrectionist who would be released from custody instead of Jesus. It's the word used to describe the, the two thieves on the cross. But it's not a word that comes close to describing Jesus. He was not a violent man. He, he wasn't someone you needed to bring a band of menacing soldiers carrying weapons in order to arrest. That's what Jesus tried to explain to his arresters. He said in verse 49, And day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You had plenty of chances to rest if you wanted. I was never going to fight you. This is an indictment upon the leaders of Israel on their, their home turf of the temple. They, they didn't dare arrest Jesus because they were cowards. They were afraid of the Jewish people. They were desperate to hold on to the respect of the people. So they came to Jesus under the, the cover of darkness because they were children of darkness. They were walking in the darkness and they missed the damning irony of this whole situation. They thought Jesus was the problem. They thought they were the custodians of the light of God's truth, but they were dangerously mistaken. It caused them to try to snuff out the light of the world by capturing him in the dark. Now they misunderstood who Jesus was and what he had come to do. His was not a mission of violence. His goal was not worldly acclaim. He was on a mission of sacrifice so that heaven might be filled with sinners saved by grace. This world often misunderstands what Jesus came to do. Those who claim the name of Christ often misunderstand the nature of Jesus' ministry. He does not use the same methods or have the same goals as those in this world. That's why Jesus allowed these men to seize him. It wasn't because he couldn't stop them. It was, become, it was because he had come to do the Father's will in accordance with Scripture. So he said, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. This sinister operation to capture Christ didn't catch him by surprise. He, he knew all along that this would be his fate. Isaiah wrote of what Jesus would experience back in chapter 53 of his book. He wrote in verses 8 and 9, 
Listen, by oppression and judgment, he, Jesus, was taken away. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death? Listen to this. Although he had done no violence. Although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. And Jesus' arrest was in fulfillment of the scriptures. And back in verse 27 of Mark 14, Jesus also quoted Zechariah 13:7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. God's word was coming to pass. And we see this even more clearly in verses 50 to 52. Jesus was not only betrayed by a friend, but he was also misunderstood by his arresters. And lastly, he was abandoned by his followers. He was abandoned by his followers. In direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, verse 50 tells us that all of Jesus' disciples left him and fled. His sheep were scattered. The words of Jesus finally hit home for his followers. He was not going to be the Messiah they had initially hoped for. He was not going to lead a, a forceful takeover. Instead, he had told Peter to put away his sword and had resolved to let the scriptures be fulfilled. So both the individual and collective faith of the disciples collapsed. They all fled. They all left him. Some would follow him again cautiously as he went to trial in the wee hours of the morning. And again, or others would gather again at the cross to see him crucified. But at this point, they were shocked and scared. The light of revelation had come on, and like roaches, they, they scurried away to find somewhere to hide. They might have been ready to put up a physical fight for Jesus. Peter certainly was, but they weren't ready for the spiritual battle they were actually in. Now, in verses 51 to 52, we read about another follower of Jesus, an unidentified young man. We don't know who he was. The best guess is that this man was Mark, since none of the other gospel writers mention him. And we know that Mark was young at this time. We also know from Acts 12.12 that he lived in Jerusalem, and he was from a family of some means. So having a relatively expensive linen garment here wouldn't have been out of the question. So perhaps Mark placed himself in this narrative as a way of admitting his own failure as a follower of Jesus. But it's hard to be certain that this was Mark. What we do know is that this young man was a follower of Christ, and he was in a hurry. Apparently, he had learned of Jesus going to the garden and had followed him that night, but he only had time to grab a linen cloth. The Greek word here is often used to describe a linen outer garment. Instead of a typical hardy uh, wool cloak, this was a lighter more refined version of outerwear. It would have been a valuable possession for most people, but because the crowd tried to seize this young man as he was following Jesus, he was willing to leave it behind. In the heat of the moment, he was more concerned about running away from any association with the Lord. And Mark tells us that he ran away naked. 
Everyone wants to know, was he in his birthday suit? I don't know. Okay, he might have still had some undergarments on since naked could be taken in that way at that time. But the point is that he was in a state of shame. Right? Just like all the other followers of Christ. The, the, the account of this young man is not just some random insertion into this gospel narrative. Instead, he represents all those who fled from Jesus at this hour. And his nakedness reveals how shameful this was. Throughout the Bible, nakedness is associated with shame and guilt over sin. In Eden, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed until sin entered into their lives. And then their nakedness became a point of embarrassment. And if you continue to read through the Bible, you find passages in which God promises to bring judgment upon the guilty by exposing their sin and their nakedness. I want you to turn with me to Amos 2 for a moment. Amos chapter 2. I just want you to see this. In Amos, which is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, in Amos chapter 2, verse 6, God told Israel that he would not revoke his punishment upon them for their many sins, which he then detailed in verses 7 and following. Now in verse 13, look with me there, he confirmed his judgment. He said, Behold, because of all this sin, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Now look at what's going to happen. Flight shall perish from the swift... And the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. Now pay particular attention to verse 16. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So the consequence of Israel's sin would manifest in the mighty fleeing away naked on the day of God's judgment. It's a striking picture, isn't it? And it is so similar to what we find in Mark 14. In, In Revelation, Jesus also describes the lukewarm church in Laodicea as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In Revelation 16 and 17, nakedness is again seen as a consequence of sin. Nakedness is equated to the humiliation and shame that sin brings throughout God's Word. And the Bible goes on to tell us that when we try to to clothe ourselves before God, all we can do is put on polluted garments, filthy rags. And that's why Jesus needed to get nailed to a cross, stripped of his clothes, to take on his naked body the shame for the sins we've committed. And because of his humiliation, the Bible tells us that that we can be clothed again in the robes of Christ's righteousness through faith. He became naked so that we might be clothed. That is the gospel message Jesus came to redeem. He even came to redeem those who have fled from him. He has come to prepare us to stand before the holy God, not in the nakedness of shame and judgment, but fully clothed and confident in the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
That is why Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. And this passage is a reminder to us that we are prone to flee from our Lord, just like his followers in the garden. When you are embarrassed to pray at school or to pray at work, or when you know you should say something about your faith, but you don't, or when you give in to the demands of your family members who don't know Jesus, or you just go with the flow on social media because you don't want to seem weird or intolerant, or you remain silent when others are speaking up, or when you begin to question the teachings of Jesus and start to embrace other philosophies and thoughts and theories, or you seek happiness through your career or your sports team or your hobby or a relationship more than Jesus, or you refuse to give up something significant in your life for Jesus, you also flee from him. Dear brothers and sisters, the temptation to flee from our Lord is ever-present. Do not be overconfident. You don't think that you'll be okay because you're strong in faith. You, you don't know how you will respond when tested. Be humble and dependent. Also remember to be patient with other believers. Be charitable in your judgment of others. Other Christians will stumble. Sometimes they make decisions that distance themselves from the Lord. But that does not mean that they do not still have the saving grace of God. Remember that even these followers of Jesus who left him in his hour of need, they returned, they repented, they were restored, and they became apostles, they became pillars of the church. Jesus will not fail you. He's not going to leave you. Instead, we have seen this morning that he is committed to redeeming those who abandon him. And if you are feeling naked before the Lord, if you're feeling shame or guilt for something that you've done, don't hide from Jesus. Don't run from him. Let, let your shame lead you to him. He is beckoning you to return. He is willing to forgive. He wants to clothe you again. He wants to restore you. And he will do so if you go to him in faith and with a heart of genuine repentance. In the darkness of the garden, Jesus had strengthened himself through prayer to face the suffering that was ahead. So when betrayed by his old friend Judas, he responded to an evil and exaggerated kiss with a word of love. When seized unjustly by soldiers carrying weapons, Jesus submitted and meekly refused to call upon his own army of angels. He did this because he trusted in his father's plan, which is outlined in Scripture. And even when all his followers left him in shame, he endured so he might take on their shame at the cross in order to redeem them. What a Savior we have in Jesus, our Lord. In the black of the night came a crew for a fight. Armed with lamps and swords, they marched with one accord. Behind a man with a scheme that would make it seem like he was a friend so they could apprehend. But his kiss was a diss, and he would be remiss, for he betrayed the Lord for a pitiful, petty reward. 
For a moment, he must have been pleased because Jesus had been seized. But Jesus showed him kindness despite his spiritual blindness. His, his heart must have broke for what he provoked. Jesus went on to say that this was never his way. His kingdom wasn't the same. He was playing a different game. Knowing this was coming all along, he exuded a remarkable calm. When an ear went flying, Jesus started applying his healing touch that was just so clutch. Even when his fellows fled, he kept going till he bled. Because that's what he came to do for his friends and for you. So do not be ashamed, even if you've dishonored his name. Jesus was arrested, never protested. He was stricken and tested so that you might be accepted. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for our wonderful Lord Jesus. Oh, what a picture of humility we see in him in the garden. What a picture of love, patience, compassion. Oh, Father, we, we know that we are not far from any of the people that were in that garden. We're really no different than any of them. We have all abandoned you in different ways. We have fled from you. We have been cowardly in our faith. We have betrayed you at times. And yet, Father, we, we are so thankful that Jesus allowed himself to be arrested so that he could go to the cross and bear our sins. Oh, Father, thank you that Jesus was made naked for us, that we might be clothed in his righteousness. We pray these things in his precious and wonderful name. Amen.